The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's programme. I'm joined now by Brendan O'Brien, Head of Technical Services on Dublin City Council. Uh, Brendan O'Brien, welcome to the programme. Uh, you're going to the, the Dublin City Council and National Transport Authority. This is the public consultation portion now, which you have to do for College Green traffic management proposals. Uh, yep. This is a great opportunity to tell people about it. What are you doing? Okay, well, in College Green, um, what we're proposing to do uh, is to remove the east-west uh, traffic movements from College Green. Um, this is really to, to facilitate the introduction of Lewis Cross City and um, also to, I suppose, by, by, by doing this, we, we remove some of the conflicts that would, that would be at the junction um, as, as the Lewis is introduced. And also we, w- we would feel that it makes um, the whole location a much better uh, environment. Um, so we, we've looked at various different options for, for this area, and this is the one that uh, we believe has the most uh, benefits in terms of uh, safety, in terms of efficiency, and also it, it allows us then to, to, to look at the civic space and, and, and redefine how it's used in that area, which is the, the real core of Dublin City. It's interesting. I mean, we're too quick, I think, maybe to assume everybody does it better. But but the Continentals have done this for a long time. I mean, you go to a beautiful city like Bordeaux, where they've managed to keep so much of the 15th and 16th century alive by essentially keeping traffic out of the city centre. But what they have is they have a very good way of getting around the edges of the city and then also moving east-west or north-south, as the case may be. Similarly, I, I remember being in Freiburg in, in Germany. No traffic in the centre at all. Uh, and and one of the key things being early morning deliveries. I'm constantly yep. appalled by the fact that, oh, you know, so much of city centre traffic is held up by enormous trucks in the middle of the city. So well, this this can work. Absolutely, we believe it can work. And uh, I mean, you're quite right that there are quite a number of of European cities that, that, uh, you know, have shown uh, shown the way in this regard. Um, And, you know, as part part of our city centre study, one of the things that that we had uh, been looking at and and have been looking at is, is, as you say, the whole idea of deliveries and the times that trucks are in the city and how to better manage that. And, of course, the the whole HTV management strategy, which we have in place to do in conjunction with the Port Tunnel, you know, greatly assists us in that. Um, But you're you're quite right. Uh, You know, there are examples, um, you know, and... I, I suppose what we should say first of all is is that uh, we're talking about a relatively small part of of Dublin city centre here. Um, it is the, the the kind of ancient heart of it, and it is uh, you know surrounded by some of the, the the best architecture we have in the city. But it is a very small part of the city centre. Uh, access to around this area for for car parks, for deliveries, etc., will still be allowed. So 
you know, it's important, uh, you know, we're not blocking mm. off the entire city centre or, or, but, or anything like that. But don't the Europeans, because of, of European sort of law as to who owns the ground, that like we have much more, I always remember when we built the port tunnel, it took us an, an awful lot more time than the fellow in Madrid because our situation in terms of ownership is quite different. Does that, do you, do you run into that kind of problem at College Green? No, no. I mean, what we're proposing in College Green to do is, to, is to is to take what it, what is in fact the public uh, the public space uh, and reimagine it. So, if you like, the public space at the moment is is what we would describe as building line to building line. So, so the the railings of the Bank of Ireland over to the um, you know the Ulster Bank uh, on, on the far side. So the footpaths, the road, the median, they're all in in our ownership at the moment. What we're what we're proposing here is to change the use of that uh, of that space. Um, so no, we, we we won't run into we won't run into the ownership issue. Oh, okay, so but I mentioned Bordeaux and I mentioned mm-hmm. Freiburg and so on. We we we're going. The car is a fact of life. It's going to ex- exist. Um, yes. What those cities have managed to do is find a way of getting to the other side of the city if you want to use a motor car or you're in delivery truck or whatever it happens to be. The problem for us is we don't really have that, though. Isn't that so? And therefore, eh, the, 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 the College Green was an efficient way of getting through town, College Green and O'Connell Street. Now we're going to have to find much better ways of doing it. Well, well, if you if you look, um, you know, College Green. We we first introduced restrictions in College Green back in uh, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. Um, you know, so th- th- this has been a long time, um, you know, there. Uh, and we also restricted, uh, <clears throat> you know, we also uh, changed O'Connell Street uh, for the O'Connell Street plan back in two thousand and one. So you know we have had a, a a good amount of time to 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 start to figure out some of the orbital routes. We've also got to bear in mind that the city council has built, um, you know, the James Joyce Bridge to the west, uh, the Samuel Beckett Bridge to to, to the east, uh, specifically to to take to to open up some orbital routings around the city centre and take the dependency that which was on the city centre uh, uh, away. Um, yeah. We obviously have the M50 as well, um, which was which was uh, expanded and increased in the number of lanes as well. So we, we, we do have quite a bit of the infrastructure in place. As I say, the Port Tunnel is, is a key example there where, where, you know, we took a lot of the trucks that were using the, the city centre, including College Green and, and the Keys, out of the, out of the city centre. Um, you know, over the next number of years, we'll, we'll be looking to see how we can better manage deliveries to ha- have, you know, more appropriate vehicles being used in the city centre, you know, rather than very But you see trucks. this, don't you, like at Grafton Street? I mean, they, they, the, the, the uh, and it, trucks is probably a bad word because it conjures up visions of 40-foot, uh, you know, trucks coming in. Just ordinary delivery vans yeah. and stuff cause chaos. What we see in in Grafton Street now because they have to get in early, get it yes. done, and yep. and then it becomes pedestrianised. Yes. The world didn't come to an end because those vans had to be gone by 8 a.m. or whatever time they had to end. So it, no, the same I, thing I, for the city isn't isn't a disaster. No, no, no. And, and I mean, I quite agree with you there. And I mean, you know, as part of the whole kind of city centre, you know, we're talking about extending that pedestrian zone to, to Suffolk Street, for example. And, and again, it would be the idea that deliveries are done up to a certain hour and after that time it becomes a different use of the street. So we have to be very conscious of, of making sure that people can 
you know, to conduct their business, get their customers in and out, uh, get their deliveries in. But but there certainly is uh, more of a requirement to have a bit more yeah. um, order on the deliveries, so Big, so that they're not causing problems at yeah. the time when the shops themselves, they, their customers, they don't want to delay their customers getting to them. You know. Yeah, because. There is a conflict happening uh, in in major industrialized countries like Britain and Ireland and America and so on, is that in many places, city centers are, if not dying, certainly in trouble as the the, the kind of shopping movement has been to outlying areas. Dunleer is a really good example of this, where, where people are suggesting that the development of Dundrum town center uh, destroyed Dunleary as a, as a uh, you know, a retail operation. It's vitally important for you at Dublin City Council to make sure that that the city of Dublin remains vibrant. Uh, absolutely, and and I mean the population of the city of Dublin has grown over the last number of years. You know, we've had the the kind of regeneration of the keys, which which if you go back a number of years, we're we're, we're really being blighted. Um, so there's been a lot of positive positive things happening. Um, we we've obviously re, repaved um, Grafton Street. We've you know the the Lewis has been built at the moment. Um, so there are a number of of of, of items, both transportation, public realm, um, that are ongoing at the moment or in planning over the next while and I suppose from our point of view we're, we're, we have to be as you rightly say careful that, that what we don't do is we don't kill the city centre um, but we're confident that uh, you know over the last number of years there's, there's been a lot of change there's been a lot of things that have been introduced over the next number of years you know with the kind of 2030 strategy from the NTA we've been we've been anticipating you know a greater investment to public transport so this is a kind of a step along the way and 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 okay. each kind of each kind of step kind of adds we we would feel to the city centre on the issue of public transport. Um, you know, buses and Lewises and all these kind of things are always considered public transport. Sometimes I get a sense that you don't consider taxis public transport yet. They provide a, a huge service. Um, well, and, well, and why are they going to be able to move around? Yes, yeah, they will. I mean, what we're proposing with this uh, with this iteration of College Green is is that where the Boston Lewis can go, uh, in other words, around by Trinity College, will also allow taxis to go in each direction as well, uh, sharing that route with them. All right, okay, and. And um, it's important, obviously, for you that people do get involved in the public consultation. What do they do? Uh, absolutely. Well, if they if they visit our website, the Dublin City that I website, um, they'll see the consultation document, which contains the details of what we're proposing, and it also contains details of of potential proposed bus stop changes, um, route, bus route changes to to facilitate this. Um, and what they can do is they can they can download that information, um, look and see if they want to make comments to us. They can do it in writing. They can do it by email. Um, but uh, what we'd like to do is we'd like to get people's opinion, you know, first of all, in College Green, um, do they feel that tran- transforming College Green into something different is, is the way we should be going? We believe it's got a huge safety um you know, uh, motivation for for what we're doing there, but we okay. also believe that there's a there's a huge plus side to 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 doing that. Obviously, if people have concerns about where their their new bus okay. stops would go or bus routes, you know, again to communicate that 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 to us, the consultation is open till the twenty right. fourth of May. 
the over by 24 to May is dublincity.ie for your consultation. Brendan O'Brien, Head of Technical Services uh, at Dublin City Council. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now uh, by John O'Keefe, criminologist, forensic psychologist at City Colleges, and uh, editor of the Garda Review, no less. No, 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 no. Associate editor. Associate, right. Well, as associate editor of the Garda Review, you want to talk to me about the fact that the Gardaí don't believe that they're fully equipped to deal with possible terrorists and uh, attacks and the AGSI conference is yeah. taking place and they're talking about it. Yeah, the AGSI, so that's the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors. Um, I work um, for, I suppose, the uh, other wing, the majority of Garda, the rank and file uh, for the GRA and that's the magazine I work for. But yes, they've said that uh, uh, we're not prepared for a terrorist uh, threat and I don't think anybody in the, in the Garda would uh, disagree with that. We have our specialist units. They have fine sounding names. We have the Special Detective Unit. We have the Emergency Response Units, of course. And we now have something called the Garda Counterterrorism Intelligence Unit. Now, these are great titles and they're men doing good I and mean, women doing good work. But, for example, there are only in or around 30 people in that Garda Counterterrorism Intelli- International Unit. So these are people who are specifically tasked with dealing with, for example... Um, threat from ISIS, such as it might be uh, towards a country um, like now, ours. Now, hold a while. You're coming in and give me all this. And I respect you greatly. You're a man of great learning and you're, you're you know, you, you uh, support the GRA through the magazine and so on. But, like, the French weren't prepared for it. The Belgians weren't prepared for it. The British weren't prepared for it when the bombs went off in the tube stations and so on. Uh, the Americans weren't prepared for it when the bullets were flying San Bernardino. No Nobody is prepared for it because it's impossible to prepare. No, I mean, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It'd be hard to disagree with that. How do you cater for people who are willing to blow themselves up? I mean, there was a time in the terrorist threat in Ireland was easy to understand. Yeah. It was a lot of men in balaclavas with bad accents who did not want to be killed themselves in the process of killing others. So at least they could be sought out and found. But... This is a different type of threat. And you're right. Um, you know, Ireland is, is, is in some respects, in a generic sense, as badly prepared as everybody else. But we're worse. Um, and we're worse because for a whole load of reasons, the reasons being primarily is that we have an under-equipped police force in every sense of the word. No, I'm, I'm prepared to buy that, right? The under-equipping, badly paid. Uh, the, the pay of, of, a, of a Garda is less than the pay of a Lewis driver, which makes no sense. Well, whatsoever. sorry, it's, it's, it's less than the pay of a nurse. Not that I'm saying it, it shouldn't necessarily be, but it's 5,000 less. So you're looking at Garda's com- Garda coming out at 23,000 from Temple Moor. And if they stay in the force 20 years, I've said this to you before, if they're in the force 20 years and stay as Garda, which most will do, and there's nothing wrong with that, they can expect to be pulling home an extra €600 Euro a month on average. Now, just think about that. After 20 years service, that that's what we think of our Gardaí. We're all terrifically worried about the Lewis, uh, the Lewis drivers, though. 
But um, there are issues, however, that we have to take into account. And your your thing about the fellows with balaclavas and bad accents, of course, is is absolutely crucial because, you know, they knew who they were mm. or somebody knew who they were. And I'm going to be politically incorrect, but it is a fact. If, you know, if 500 people called Faisal Mohammed arrive in here at the airport over the next year or two... It's absolutely beyond the capability of of our uh, security forces to know whether they are refugees, economic migrants, or terrorists bent on doing us harm. Yeah. Because the quality now of passports, which can be bought for two and sixpence uh, abroad, uh, makes them very difficult to stop. Yeah, that all goes down to intelligence and to training. And the yeah. guard that you don't have the same level of intelligence acumen, it's not their fault. They just don't have the money behind them. As, for instance, the, the Brits would have. And as you wisely pointed out earlier, even with that, all that behind you, there's no guarantee that you won't that you won't be able to prevent these things. But look, you just think about it. Let's just go down to basics for a minute. Although all of this is in many ways unpreventable, if that was the case, we should do nothing and we're not going to do that. Can you imagine a busload of American tourists, God forbid, in Killarney this summer gets hijacked and is about to be blown up in, I don't know, five minutes, two minutes, one minute. What are we going to do? Wait for the emergency response unit from Limerick to come along or from Cork? By the time they get there, it's going to be all now over. Now, you're heading into very well, dangerous water here. Well, no, I'm heading... I know I, what you're going to say. No, I haven't said you're anything. Going to, you, you're, about to, you're about to say armed guarding. No, I didn't say that. Um, and can I just, for the record, say the GRA, and I respect that, absolutely say the guard, they should not be armed. And indeed, every second guard you'll talk to say, no, they shouldn't be armed. I'm just going to throw out something on a personal perspective. Okay. From John O'Keefe's perspective, we've got in around 196 countries in the world, about six or so of them in a few Pacific islands think it's not wise to arm their police force about 95% do now either we're all geniuses New Zealand Britain and ourselves and Iceland and Norway and one or two others either we're geniuses and have got it all right or they've got it all wrong and I have to say it looks as if uh, they've got it all right if we look at the top five countries in the world um, in terms of lowest crime rates Switzerland, number one, Singapore, number two, Hong Kong, number three, Bahrain, four, Luxembourg, five, all armed. So that, that, ah, that, connection, I cannot believe. that connection between an armed police force and rising crime is an absolute nonsense. And the next nonsense that's always perpetrated is, oh, should we be like the United States? In what way is Ireland like the United States? In, in what, how are we no, similar back culturally, up, no, socially, no, or economically? Back up the talk. Back up the talk. Look at the five countries you list. Singapore is a dictatorship. Uh, ba- then you mentioned Bahrain, Hong Kong, who are dots on a map. Tell us about Switzerland and Scandinavia then, well, leaving aside Norway. Tell well, me I, what you know about them. I know a lot about but like the Swiss... Okay. What's wrong with them? <laughs> Switzerland's a very different kind. It's always been different kind of countries. Speaking <laughs> but sure, every country three languages and all sorts of things. No, but the American example is a, would you dismiss is a very good example. Why? Because you arm the cops, then uh, they, you immediately ratchet up uh, the, the aggression thing, like when, uh, when as not routinely, but with some regularity, I, I get pulled over in America for the odd uh, driving offence. Uh, this fella comes up, adjusts his sunglasses, hitches up his two cold forty fives, and then is extraordinarily aggressive towards me. Well, I'm sorry, because to that, the Americans start from basis, understandably, that the fella in the motor car is likely to kill them. So you're happy with the comparison between Ireland and and the United States? 
when you talk about armed police and how unsuccessful it's been there. Yeah. You think that's reasonable? Let me just explain to you very briefly why I think it's not. Um, if you're you, black, you certainly don't it, want armed police. We're leaving, in leaving the race issue aside for one minute. Are we the most heavily armed and largest country in the world with a multi-ethnic population? No, we're not. Do we have a health system that believes you can leave people to die on the side of the road or in their homes? No, we don't. Do we have an educational system geared towards the elite? No, we don't. Do we have a population that's both <laughs> God-fearing and God-hating in equal measure? No, we don't. Do we have it written into our constitution that we have the right to bear arms? No, we don't. Can 16-year-olds buy guns in many states with just proof of a driving licence? No, we don't. So, honestly, it's beyond... You must live in a parallel universe if you think we can have this debate about arming police and compare it to the United States because there is no comparisons. It's like comparing apples with very strange oranges indeed. It's just not the same. Let's compare ourselves to Switzerland, to Spain, okay. to France, to well, all the other European countries. Well, let's go back to the hypothetical 32 American tourists in a bus in Killarney with two uh, uh, lunatics on board uh, who are going to blow themselves up in three minutes. Uh, I, 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 honestly, PC-49 or Garda number 187C, armed with uh, a, a, a revolver is not going to solve it either. Well, we, we, do, we don't know that. But yes, I, know, I, accept the, I accept your general point that it's not good enough to say arming the police force is going to solve the terrorist problem and I'm not saying that. In fact, I'm using the arming of, of our police force really in comparison to other countries around the world and also for other crime, more indigenous crime. Really, you're right. If a, an Islamic terrorist wants to blow up this mythical bus in Killarney, he's going to do it. And really, the fact that a Gardaí is armed or not is probably... But, but not, it, probably Probably not going All to right. change the situation. But pictures this weekend uh, from Paris, which is still on full alert. It, it wasn't the gendarmerie were marching down uh, the Champs Elysees. It was soldiers. No, I accept that. And, and and maybe we should be looking more at our army. What I'm saying is we need to have a conversation about this. It's not good enough to be one of these lovely six countries anymore that genuinely says in the old Robert Peel sense that, and I understand this notion that the police are the citizenry and you would never arm the citizenry so you can't arm the police. We have to move away from that. All right. Nobody's dancing at the crossroads But, anymore. all right, but uh, the real fact which we can agree on is that possibly uh, intelligence, not in terms of the individual's intelligence mm. but intelligence in terms of knowledge of possible threats we seem to be understaffed and under aware Yeah and I mean you have to look at the whole Garda Shiakoni when you say this because they're understaffed and underwear for so many things for local crimes you know it's not just for Islamic State terrorism but yeah if you look at that that unit that I talked about earlier it's got about 30 people in it it's simply not enough we need more money but we need really high level training and integration with the Garda and European police forces. We must have that. We just simply don't have that at the moment. But let's go back to basics. The first thing, Gardaí, since we just mentioned the Gardaí there, and they are a favourite topic of mine, the first thing they need are things called anti-ballistic vests, not anti-stab-proof vests. Now, the support units have them, naturally enough, but the regular Gardaí don't. So we're assuming a Gardaí will not, no one's ever going to take a shot at a Gardaí. Of course they are. And the second thing is tasers. We've talked about these before. Why aren't all Gardaí armed with tasers? We live in cloud cuckoo land. We think we're in this island where crime doesn't exist and yet high levels of violent crime are on the increase. Granted, generic crime isn't but violent crime right. can be. Uh, according to our texters, you have quite a career as a pro- propagandist for the Gardaí but as... You mean st- I, I support them, yeah. But as a stand-up comedian with remarks about bad accents, that went down like a like a wet balloon. Did it? Does the texter say where they were from? Well, they're from everywhere. Why were you... They're, everybody's going mad. Why did you go do the bad accent thing anyway? Well, yeah, I suppose bad accents being that a lot of the uh, paramilitaries in Ireland might have been from a certain part of the country, you know. Right. 
I mean, not all of them, obviously, but... All right. Can I get back to terrorism as I'm worried about it? Yeah. What uh, is what are the GRA for whom uh, form the bulk of the police force? What do they want apart from a wage increase, which it can't go away because you cannot pay people that you want to protect your uh, peanuts? Yeah, well, do you know what? If I'm being absolutely honest, the Gardaí listening to this are not concerned about the terrorist threat and I don't blame them. They are concerned about the boring stuff that you might and other people might think is a bit dull and we've heard it all before, which is the fact that they're paid the same rate as some interns when they leave Templemore, which is the fact that each and every government pays lip service to them and treats them like absolute fools, which is the fact that they take their stations away from them, their places of work, which is the fact that they don't defend them, which is the fact that they don't pay them correctly and which is the fact that they treat them in a way that really you would treat no other section of society but the Gardaí. Well, I have a former Minister for Justice coming in after you, so I might say it to him. Well, maybe because they're former Ministers of Justice, they might end up agreeing with me. All right. They, they, we have to go, but they, they, I have to say that uh, there is a deep concern following your arrival that we're not prepared for a terrorist threat. Well, I, I wouldn't say because John O'Keefe arrived and said we're not or that we're not. But really, we have to, we have to look at uh, preparing our Guardi for all threats, uh, both local, national and international, and we haven't prepared them for that. All right. Um, that was John O'Keefe, criminologist and forensic psychologist at City Colleges. For the purpose of this argument, the associate editor at the Garda Review. All right, well, on the issue of Gardaí handling the terrorist threat and indeed their pay hook, I, I like the, the pleasant text. I missed them while I was away. Hook, you're an oaf. That guy on your show is spot on. You're a moron if you think we're like the American says. Tony, and uh, a lot of you are still upset about his comment about bad accents, and but also a lot of people feeling that uh, uh, John O'Keefe uh, says a lot of sensible things about the Gardaí. Interestingly, he is then followed by a former leader of the Progressive Democrats, former Minister for Justice, but now, importantly, a candidate for Shannon Ern on the university panel, the NUI panel, uh, Michael McDool. Michael McDool, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much, George. What do you make of that card of stuff? Are we OK for terrorism? Am um, I safe in my bed? Well, we're, we're, we can never be complacent because, I mean... Um, Ireland would be a great launch pad for uh, for um, terrorism in England and for organising uh, terrorism in England and therefore um, whatever resources have to be put into making sure that that doesn't happen just have to be found and made available. But we've been on about it for weeks though. I mean, they are short of resources. Is that not so? Yeah, Angar the Siakana is generally short of resources. You may recall that in a former existence I tried to uh, and succeeded in bringing their strength up to 14,000 and then um, uh, due to the um, crash, um, that was cut back and they are now back where at square one. But um, I, I think they, they need not merely um, numbers, but they also need uh, resources in terms, terms of overtime to deal with organised crime and to deal with terrorism. You know, surveillance, uh, I remember from my time in justice, is a very expensive thing to put, uh, to tail George Hook around town for a yeah. while. It costs money, you know. I'm sure it does. Ingrid finds that the case. <laughs> now, uh, my guest is candidate for Shannon Aaron on the NUI panel, Michael McDool. I was away, but unlike... Uh, 20 or 30 years ago, you now can keep in touch with them through the internet and so on. But I am staggered that I came home to no government. And you have, have written trenchantly about it. You might remind me yeah. what you said. 
Well, I have written about it for a number of weeks now in the Sunday Business Post. And um, welcome back, by the way. And you brought the good weather with you. We see all that. But I mean, um, uh, what's happened is that uh, the only two parties, George, as as you knew before you went, uh, that can actually form a government or um, create the conditions for the formation of a government are Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Nobody else has the numbers in combination to do the business. And there's been a kind of a standoff going on now for a number of weeks where um, Fianna Fáil uh, are intent on having a minority government either led by themselves or by Fine Gael. But the one thing that they won't countenance is going into um, any formal uh, coalition or partnership government, either with Fine Gael or with a combination of independents. And there seems to be a number of motives behind that. First of all, there's this idea, which I was writing about, about party identity, you know, and uh, a kind of a, also combined with a kind of political uh, theory about their, you know, their history and a bigotry about not uh, doing a deal with the blue shirts and all the rest of it. And the second thing is that it suits their um, uh, agenda at the moment to keep Enda Kenny in office rather than to allow uh, conditions to come about whereby a different person would lead um, Fine Gael because they regard Enda Kenny as somebody um, who is unlikely to lead a Fine Gael well, revival. All the chatter of like the nation and the people and everybody coming first. In fact, the only people who appear to be coming first are simple party political advantage. And is... Uh, the point here that it would suit the reason Fianna Fáil don't want to go into Fine Gael is nothing about bailing a blow this is essentially now about the fact that they're pretty confident next time around they will come back as the biggest party and therefore a Fine Gael with a weakened leader will be a great target exactly. isn't that, isn't that what we well I mean that, that I think is the political calculus of a good number of them now in fairness there are there, John McGuinness was on the, on the radio over the weekend George and he was saying that a number of uh, Fianna Fáil uh, TDs, uh, they're in a minority, agree with him that uh, what's needed now is to uh, put together a five-year programme uh, based on full-blooded coalition with, um, uh, you know, a partnership and on the basis of equality. And they could be talking about rotating Taoiseach and all of that. But the uh, the, um, the the more kind of crude ground hurling that you've just mentioned as, as a kind of a, a three-year strategy seems to be uh, having the upper hand. But if we were in America uh, during this election, uh, we'd know where we stood if we voted for Trump, if he got the nomination, yeah. and we knew, we'd know where we stand for Hillary. If we were in England, there was a general election, we'd know where we'd stand if we voted for the Conservatives or for Labour. The problem here now is that for the first time ever, is it not true, and you're, you're, you're experienced in all this, that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are effectively centre-right parties, so therefore yeah. they would have a government in which they would have a lot of common, uh, commonality. Yeah. Then there's another group within Dáil Éireann, Sinn Féin, certain independents and so on, who are essentially centre-left or extreme-left. So isn't that the kind of politics we want? Well, yeah, there's a, there's an ex- there's a hard-left uh, core of Sinn Féin and the anti-austerity people and, and the Socialist Party who don't want to get into government uh, with anybody except people like themselves so they are really abstentionist as, as regard uh, regards doing a deal with anybody else and the Labour Party took such a hammering uh, that um, the only the only combination at the moment that can work is uh, Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil supported by the other either in or outside uh, the bed so to speak 
But, I mean, um, we've got to get to the point, surely, that uh, I recognise the fact that, I mean, if uh, only half the people or just less than half vote Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil in a PR uh, system, that um, uh, the the, par- the people who vote centre-right or uh, centre-centre-right, whatever the way you want to define it, and I'm not so keen on uh, those labels, but, I mean, I, I know there's a distinction between them and yeah. the, hard, the hard left, but the people who vote that way are entitled to have the, the country, if, they're, if they are the largest bloc, they are entitled to have the country uh, run uh, roughly along the lines that they that they want to, and the 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 division between FG and FF is now frustrating that. Yeah, but um, my guest, by the way, you recognise the voice well, Michael McDowell, uh, currently a candidate for the Shannon uh, on the NUI panel. Michael McDowell, you've been in there, and there's all this talk about this minority government thing, and that yeah. uh, Mayor Martin's latest point was that like we're hidebound by Westminster thinking that we're not like continentals who make this work all the time. I put to you, continentals don't make this work all the well, time. Well, yeah. well, Spain has no government. Um, it, it, the, one of the most liberal countries on earth, the Danes, are now essentially uh, governed by a right-wing, an extreme right-wing government in effect. So it doesn't just work everywhere. No, I mean, um, uh, no political system is perfect. But uh, we do have our own uh, system of PR, multi-seat constituencies, which give give rise to uh, fragmentation uh, when the people vote that way. And it's amazing, in fact, how unfragmented the results have been, given how open the uh, the, yeah. the, the system is to, to fragmented politics. But um, uh, you could say that uh, it doesn't work, that, um, that this kind of arrangement doesn't work. And you could look to Germany, for instance. The, the Social Democrats in Germany are taking a bit of a hammering in the polls now, and they're in serious... Uh, do do uh, at the moment uh, because they're part of a grand coalition. So I'm not suggesting that uh, that the um, people who are putting party before country are completely naive. Uh, you know, there are dangers, as you, yours truly here knows very well, about going into coalition with a larger party. And you have to, you, you have to be very uh, circumspect if you do so. But on this occasion, I, I, you look, you look at the horizon, George. I mean, um, it hasn't changed since you went away. There is industrial relations problems coming down the tracks big, big time for us. Uh, the the so-called fiscal space seems to have evaporated uh, with with increasing costs in the health sector and, and the like. All of these uh, pre-election promises about cutting and slashing USE and abolishing it that seems to have all uh, disappeared off the table. Uh, and we have um, the possibility of Brexit. And we have other things like, for instance, the European Commission is now putting forward a proposal to scrap the uh, Dublin uh, Refugee Convention and to have us all share equally in uh, Angela Merkel's million uh, um, uh, immigrant uh, idea. So, I mean, we need a government. Uh, Whatever your views on those issues are, we need somebody who can go to Brussels and say, I speak for the Irish people. And if you speak... But you don't speak for the Irish people if you have... 30% uh, or something. 30%, yeah. yeah, Exactly. And I mean, that's why why I strongly believe there should be, and I've been writing articles to, uh, to the effect that there should be uh, that the two parties that do broadly share uh, the same uh, ideological out- outlook should bury their differences in the national interest and provide us with a government. And they can have all the internal debates they like. And I believe that there there are many good things coming now. Like, for instance, it looks as if the Doyle is going to be made much less a cat's paw for the government. It's going to be much more independent. The committees are going to be given genuine powers. And the Count Court is now independently elected and all the rest of it. And I really strongly believe Shannon Aaron um, uh, can now have a, have the role that 
people uh, wanted for it uh, at the time of the, of the referendum by reforming its electoral base and all the rest of it. All of those things are possible, but, but we yeah. still need a government. Well, just this thing about the government, there seems to be a belief that everything's actually great, like the economy's fine and, you know, no matter who's in charge, we're all just going to carry on. Well, and but that view is very, very naive. Haddington Road, yeah. Haddington Road which has a bit to run, uh, already the, the major public sector unions are beginning to say, well, uh, it, it won't run its full term and we better start uh, agitating now. So we have, you know, people looking for 30 and 4% pays, pay rises. We have people saying that if if that group gets it, we're, we're in for it too. We have um, unrest uh, and, and some of it is entirely justified, such as the two-tier uh, wage structure in, in nursing and in Garthi and in, even up to yeah. the judiciary, there are th- those two-tier uh, uh, wage structures, which, um, you know, has identical people doing the same job, getting totally different pay packages. That's all uh, going to give rise to huge industrial uh, um, in relations upset, not in two years' time, in this autumn or this okay. summer or this autumn. But, but just ex- like a lot of people, me included, are reading about minority government. We really have never had it. So it's mm. a bit of a, a new... De- well, we've never had to the point that a minority government short about 30 seats. Yeah. But... They, they, how could it conceivably work when when you come when you have a budget or you come and you say, "Listen, we want to legislate for this," and there are twice as many people on the other side of the floor than you have, and suddenly they say, "Well, yeah. we don't like this as an idea." Well, well I mean, that, I mean, you go back to the um, Tala strategy. That was the last time. Yeah. That was the last time that a minority. Um, uh, governed with the uh, uh, kind of prior consent of of a a large block and uh, it lasted two years and it didn't do Fine Gael any good and Fianna Fáil have learned that lesson. So um, I I don't believe that, you know, propping up a government from outside is all that viable a a matter because, for instance, when you go to Cabinet you get all the civil service advice, you get all the reports coming to you as a member of cabinet, you have uh, discussions at cabinet under cabinet confidentiality, you have the attorney general telling you what you can and cannot do legally, you have all of that and it's very, very difficult for a group of people who aren't in the tent, so to speak, to say that they are going to participate in the formation of government policy. I don't see that that's a a reality and uh, therefore I, I really do think that a lot of people see the minority government option as merely putting off an election for a year or two. Well, that was really my next question. Mm. Like, you have knocked on doors. Like, yeah. you've got a sense of talking to people who vote. Therefore, if if you were to say, we have to have an election in three or four weeks' time, would you get a different result in your view? Well, I, I very much doubt it because I think at the moment, just uh, I was I was out at Leopardstown Racecourse at a, at a, a, a do for um, the hospice movement but the lady selling me the the race card uh, on the way into the race course gave me uh, an earful on the exact subject that she really resented the fact that the politicians wouldn't do a deal between themselves. And I think that uh, uh, talking to um, uh, everyone you meet, they really are impatient for a stable government. They don't want messing. They don't want uh, kind of trickery. They don't want uh, people putting people into government so they can pull them down at the first available opportunity. And they are looking at the issues that I was mentioning, industrial relations, Brexit, all these things. And they're and they're and they're saying and they're saying in in in, the, in their heads, 
we need this this five, next five years is going to be tricky. We haven't emerged out. We, we, there isn't a great recovery. You know, the notion to keep the recovery going, we are going into very very choppy waters uh, on corporate taxation. U, U.S. policy could change in a fairly dramatic way fairly quickly. We have to have a good government. Well, now you're standing for the NUI panel, Michael McDowell, in Shandern. That conceivably could be postponed, or that happens irrespective no, no, of whether it's, it's, we have a government it, it, or not. It's one of the weird aspects of the constitution, George, that if, for instance, um, uh, Enda Kenny went to the park and persuaded Michael D. Higgins to uh, to dissolve the Dáil, uh, my election would be effectively, it, it would continue perhaps to account, but it would be aborted as soon as as soon as the the Dáil is dissolved. But the, but the goes date the, of the Shandard election is a bit after it. Yeah. All right. So I mean, the twenty third of the twenty third of, uh, of this month is the last day to post in your votes if you're an NUI or a Trinity uh, voter, uh, and the twenty sixth is the day on which this happens. And the only person under the constitution who's allowed appoint the eleven Taoiseach's nominees is not Enda Kenny. It's uh, Enda Kenny only if he gets uh, re-elected Taoiseach by the Dáil uh, before the Shannon is composed. All right, so uh, you heard it there. If you have a vote at, in either of the university um, constituencies in Shannon, in the NUI, and my guest is candidate there, Michael McDowell. Of course, you'll recognise the voice as the former leader of the Progressive Democrats. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hook. It's George Hook. And this uh, weekend, there was a a three-day synod uh, for the Catholic Church in Ireland, and it was held in Limerick. Some extraordinary things were discussed. And I'm joined now by Father Eugene Duffy, lecturer in theology and religious studies at uh, Mary Immaculate College in Limerick. Uh, Father Duffy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, the first thing is... What is a synod? And apparently this is the first one for 50 years. Why why is it taking so long? Right. It's the first time, I think, in 80 years. Uh, First of all, a synod is a gathering of people, a representative group of people from the diocese. In this case, it it was a synod for the Diocese of Limerick. So about 400 people gathered over the last three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday here at Mary Immaculate College to look at the pastoral needs and pastoral planning for the future of the diocese, together with their bishop. So it was mostly lay-led, really, then? Practically, yes. All the priests of the diocese uh, partook in it. There are over, I suppose, about 70 priests or so maybe in the diocese. Maybe not all of them were there, maybe for health reasons or whatever, but practically all all of them that are in active ministry, at least, were here. So, yes, it was predominantly a lay gathering. All right. Now, it's suggested that there were a hundred proposals to create a more unified, inclusive, and accessible church. Now, 97 of the hundred were passed. The three that weren't passed are interesting, but let's hold off on those for a minute. Stay positive. What do you think that was the key thing that came out of this? I suppose there were a few key issues that emerged from it. One was a more Uh, inclusive church, the need for a more inclusive church in that the role of women would be more positively acknowledged and recognized in terms of the leadership within the church. Secondly, the need for adult faith formation 
the need to support families in handing on the faith within their own families and, I suppose, within their communities. They were the things that came out across strongly. Also, the need in the area of liturgy so that uh, people engage more positively, more actively, more uh, creatively in, in the liturgical celebrations. In, in, in their parishes. They, they're the things that strike me immediately as, as the kind okay. of top things that came, came but, across. But the, one of the things that's coming out is, is of this, and, and it makes sense given the church is facing this crisis in vocations, the idea that lay-led liturgies without priests should be introduced. That's all very well. I'm not first of all I'm not sure what lay led liturgy means, but but the mass is the component that that, that binds together the Catholic uh, the, the believers in Catholicism, and for that you have to be an ordained priest, and in order that you can convert water and, and wine into the blood, body and blood of Christ. So uh, anything led by lay people is going to be secondary to that. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Uh, the, the primary liturgy in the Catholic Church, in terms of the regular life of the parish community, is their Sunday Mass, their Sunday Eucharist, which has to be led by a priest, and there's no question at all about that being supplanted or replaced or anything of the kind. However, one of the suggestions that was emerging, or one of the issues that not just the church in Limerick, but the church in Ireland has to look at, and which the church across the world has looked at, and there's nothing new or creative in this, is the fact that we can't necessarily have Mass every day in our parishes, or at least in all of the churches and the parishes that we have had in Ireland up to now, and with which people are very familiar. The fact of the matter is, as everybody knows, the number of priests is declining, their age profile is rising, and quite simply, physically, it won't be possible to provide as many masses as we have been providing up to now. At yeah, okay, but, but I don't want to, to be honest, like, I don't want to go uh, to church for Mick the bus driver to be telling me all about it at the top of the church. I want Father Duffy. I don't want uh, somebody off the bench to use a, a yes. sporting term. yes. And I think, well, let's look at it this way, George. There are a lot of people who are probably listening to us of an older generation, your generation and mine, who prayed in their homes as families, who yeah, gathered yeah, as okay. families to pray, and the mother or the father led the rosary. That, in a sense, is a family liturgy. That's what we mean by liturgy. Liturgy is public prayer. There's nobody saying that the Eucharist can or should be celebrated by anybody other than the ordained priest. On the other hand, it is good and valuable that people come together to pray, and people are already doing that. Okay. In lots of places, we say convents and monasteries across the world, there are groups of monks, brothers, nuns who come together and pray together every day and who don't or haven't uh, the, the, the access to the Eucharist. They are lay-led liturgies. That's what I mean by lay-led liturgies. Okay. It's, it's not that we're going to have, uh, as you say, Mick the bus driver giving the, giving the homily every day. Not at all. 
Okay, but, and my guest, remember, is uh, Father Eugene Duffy, who lectures in theology and religious studies at uh, Mary I College in Limerick. But but the reason we're doing it is that there was a, a major synod for the uh, Diocese of Limerick, the first one in 80 years this weekend, where they really looked seriously at how they could make this church uh, uh, strong and efficient, given that all the key people are now getting very old and uh, there's a shortage of them, i.e. priests. But Father Duffy, like you, the, every other walk of life that I can think of, women stand uh, shoulder to shoulder with men. Only in the Catholic Church that does that not happen. Uh, isn't that really part of the answer? Well, it may look like part of the answer. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, I suppose the church is the kind of community that has a very strong tradition and that has to build on what has, what has gone before. Now, who can say what the future is going to hold? At the moment, the issue of the ordination of women wasn't an issue that could be discussed by the Synod. It wasn't an issue on their agenda because the local church here in Limerick can do nothing about that any more than you are. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So we have to, we, we do belong to uh, a body, a group, a community of people who has a leadership and who is guided by, by a central leadership. And that central leadership at the moment is saying this is uh, an item that's off the agenda. All right, but the, interestingly that a lot of the talk at the Synod was about how the Catholic Church might learn from the Church of Ireland because Church of Ireland has done this sort of lay leadership very well yeah. in, in, in lots of its celebrations and yeah. so on. The other thing, of course, that the Church of Ireland has, uh, we've discussed the ordination of women, but it also is the issue of celibacy. And it seems that at a time when the Catholic Church, there's no question is facing a crisis uh, of, of, of age and lack of vocation, that celibacy might well also change the views of, of younger people who would have a vocation for the church but might not be willing to pay the price of celibacy. You're right. And the reality is that's a very different issue from the issue of the ordination of women. This particular issue is a rule. Yeah. rather than a matter of doctrine, which the other is classified as a matter of doctrine. They're different categories. At the moment, in, if we just go across the water to England, there are lots of married clergy, Anglicans who have become yeah. Catholic priests. So they have, there, there are married clergy. So if you like, a process has begun there. There are other um, churches throughout the world, for example, in the Lebanon. That's a church in communion with the Church of Rome's Catholic Church in that sense they have a married clergy. So we have married clergy within the Catholic Church, not in the Roman rite, but in, in some of the other rites as well. We have actually within the Roman, the, the Anglicans who have, who have come over. Now, even in his most recent in, uh, letter, the Pope has kind of given a nod, if you like, in that direction, saying well, maybe, we, maybe we should be looking at what the Oriental churches do. In other words, the Orthodox churches who have a married clergy now, a nod is as good as a wink to a blind horse, so maybe there's something there. And the Pope has previously said to the Brazilian bishops, as far as I notice, the Brazilian bishops, that if they feel that that's an issue that they think should be discussed or might help them in terms of addressing their pastoral needs, 
they should bring it to him and let's talk about it. He's not saying what the outcome will be, but at least he has created a certain opening, I think, for that conversation to take place. Well, of course, the great thing about this synod at uh, Mary Eye in the Diocese of Limerick, the first one for almost 80 years, is, of course, that we are having discussion about how the Catholic Church is going to face a very different future. Father Eugene Duffy, lecturer in theology at Mary Immaculate College in Limerick, thank you so much for joining me. We're going from the sublime to the ridiculous because coming up next in the musical archives, Tom Dunn's going all the way to Lisdunvarna.